season two of the Adult Children Voices Across America Speakers Meeting podcast. You can attend this meeting live on Thursdays at 6 p.m. Pacific Time using the Zoom ID 848-5208-0640, password 061120. For more information about adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional families, visit adultchildren.org. The following speaker share from Robert was recorded on April 20th, 2023. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. My name is Robert and I'm an adult child from a dysfunctional family. And I've been in ACA for five and a half years. Woohoo! Some weeks it feels like it's my first week and sometimes I feel like I got five years. Yay! Uh, Yeah, thank you for giving me a chance to really explore my recovery, right? This is a safe place for me to continue to feel, to be heard, to sort of accept myself, love myself, and grow emotionally with the help of my loving parent. But I I can only do that in places that I feel safe. So these meetings are are just, the speaker meetings are just great place to to exercise. So thank you for the space. Um, And then, you know, just as a kind of check-in on myself when I start these is like, you know, where am I at? You know, I was talking to someone this morning. It's like at 445 this morning, there was an alert on my phone. And it's like those, beep, 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 you know, and you're sleeping and you, you hear this. And is it a t- tornado? Or is it a hurricane? And it was basically it was a test. No action was required. And in the past, maybe 10 years ago, I would have freaked out, right? And been upset and think somebody should get fired. And I just just smile, I laughed, I rolled over, it took me 10 minutes to fall asleep, but I let it go. And I think to me, that was kind of, it's recovery because I used to get triggered by things that were fearful for me and that were upsetting or unjust for me. So we'll talk a little bit more about that. You know, normal day, I, I still work. I work from home. I'm really blessed. So I got some calls in, I had my lunch and things like that. And I did some self-care and now I'm going to spend the night going into my story. So um, you know, I'm going to talk about my experience, strength of hope, but what it was like to be brought up in a dysfunctional home that involved abandonment, there was trauma, there was verbal, emotional, and physical abuse. And then, you know, how that left me with the laundry lists and the other laundry lists as kind of survival traits. And there was a lot of shame when I came in thinking, I've got this laundry list and the other laundry list. You know, I, I felt shameful because I had this, but I realized that these are survival traits. I took them on because I was not emotionally nurtured as a child. So I'll talk about how I took those on. Um, then I'll talk a little bit about what led me to ACA. And and then I want to share sort of um, what I've learned and some of the tools that I have. And I've got this huge toolbox. I won't go through my whole toolbox of things that I've learned and things that work for me, but I'll go on through some of them that work for me. And also talk, you know, I don't know that it's done often, but also talk about some things that have not worked for me, things that didn't turn out well. And I, I've learned and I think we all learn from, you know, good experiences, but also sometimes even in recovery, there can be bad in- instances. So I'll talk a little bit about those. Right. So, um, you know, let's start with, you know, the first 18 years of my life. Right. I'm one of six children. Uh, My father was an Air Force pilot in Canada, and he was very militaristic, and he wanted uh, all my siblings and I to be perfect, you know, to be seen but never heard. He wanted us acting perfectly, you know, as a four or five or six-year-old, he wanted to act as adult and be responsible, which doesn't really make a lot of sense, but we'll we'll go into what what happened as a result of that. And then I've got a mother who was codependent. She was enabling for my my 
my dad and in his dysfunctional ways. Uh, and she always put herself second, you know, so, um, you know, as children, I'm one of six, four of us really became very much like my mother, where we put every we put everybody else first and put ourselves second. And I, I call that being codependent. Um, I, I very much became like my mother uh, in trying to please and, and help others. And then I've got one sibling now, two siblings who have become more like my father, right? And it's uh, wanting everybody else to be perfect and being very critical and stuff. So, you know, and, and this this term here, the everything is perfect family for me is as a kid, my first 18 years was all about the appearance of you have to look perfect. The neighbors think we're perfect. The grandparents think we're perfect. You know, everybody thinks we're perfect. But in the meantime, the reality is, is there's a lot of chaos. Um, so let's talk about some of that chaos. By the time I was 17 months old, uh, there were five children that were four years or younger. So my, my oldest are twins. My old siblings are twins. And then, you know, 11 months later, my brother was born. And 10 months later, I was born. And I said, so look, in, in less than four years, you've got five kids. My dad's a pilot. He's fly, flying away for a mission for two weeks and home for two weeks. So my mother's like, there's just physically not enough hands in the house to take care of five newborn kids. And she was a nurse, but still it wasn't enough. So even at a very young age, there was already this sense of not getting the attention and love that a child would expect or want. And it wasn't because of maliciousness. It was just a reality of too many kids and too little time. Um, I was told I was a happy baby. I was an easy baby. I was a smiling baby. But that meant that my mom could put me down for two hours, three hours and forget about me and not have to worry about coming to check on me because I was crying or so. What happened is I realized much later, like in three, four years ago, that that was covert abandonment for me. And there's a picture of me when I was 19 months old where I left my crib, crawled out of my crib, walked to my 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 sister's, my youngest sister, who was three months old at a time, I went into her basinette and I got into her basinet and I was just cuddling my three month old sister and I'm a 19 month old baby. And, you know, my mom came in, saw us, took a picture of it because she thought it was cute. But here I was, I needed to feel loved. And I, as a 19 month old, I got out of my crib and I went to get love from my three month old sister. And and that was, you know, my mom scolded me. She's, you know, you got to be careful. You could hurt your 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 infant sister and and all those things. So I, I was told not to do it again. But I realized now that as cute as it was, there was probably the sense of I wasn't held enough. I wanted to be held and, and parts of me and doing the 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 loving parent workbook. I realized those were things that probably uh, I didn't get, and I can realize now why I'm a person that's very into affection and feeling cuddly and holy. So that, those are things that that date back to that period. I don't remember much from my first five years, um, you know, other than, you know, that's pretty, it was instilled in me. I mean, I knew how to eat, like, you know, you sit down, you put your napkin on your lap, you have your fork here and your knife there. If you're buttering bread, you take some butter with a butter knife put it on your bread plate, then you take a piece of bread, you cut it off, you take your other knife, you take the piece of butter. I mean, it was this whole thing as a four or five-year-old that an adult would learn to do in their 20s, but I was learning to do it as a kid because my father wanted us to be like perfect, to look perfect. And that was all for us to show uh, well with his father. 
and his mother, but more specifically his father. But what it does is it takes away from the, the innocence of a child just learning, making mistakes and everything else. You're, you're taught that if you behave a certain way, you'll be accepted. Otherwise, you'll be reprimanded. So kind of like a little bit crazy, a lot crazy. <laughs> uh, so because as children, that's probably not a safe and nurturing environment. It wasn't. Um, so those who acted well and would get praised and acknowledged. And, and if you didn't act well or if you didn't listen and you were disciplined and you were verbally criticized. So, you know, it's just, it's, it's not a really great place for, for a, a young child to grow and really explore their feelings and explore their needs because they're, I was taught this is, if I'm perfect, then it's going to be good. But perfect is not about feeling. It's about logically acting. So the birth of my false self of trying to be perfect. Um, you know, you know, when I was five, also something happened is my, my, there was a world fair was coming into town. My parents were going with my siblings, but they decided for whatever reason that they were going to drop me off at my paternal grandparents and spend a week while they were doing the, the world fair thing. And it was kind of interesting because I, I spent a lot of time mostly with my grandmother. I started to build a relationship of trust and love and acceptance with my grandmother that lasted till, you know, literally the day she died you know, 85 years later, 86 years later. So that was kind of interesting. It's like, this is a, she was a safe person for me. Uh, and then a defining moment for me is when I was five years old and they said, you're going to go see a dentist. I don't know what a dentist is. I go see a dentist and dentist does whatever dentists do. And I don't know, they're doing stuff with my mouth. And at the end of it, they said, oh, we want you to, they gave me a printed paper with my name on it. And they said, we're going to take a picture of you because you have no cavities. And I have no idea what a cavity is, but I didn't have them. I guess that was good. So I've got a picture. It was in the paper that, that the next day it was in the paper. And, and that 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 night that it was in the paper, the whole family was talking about, oh, you know, he was perfect. And, you know, and, and it's like this notion of I had never been recognized at home. I'd never been visible. And all of a sudden I'm getting all this attention because I was perfect. So the, the parts of me inside my brain said, if I do things perfectly, I'll be in the picture in the paper and they'll take pictures of me and then and then I'll be loved, right? And that's how a, a five-year-old thinks. So this notion of trying to be perfect was instilled in me through very funky ways. So from there, I tried to sort of figure out how can I be perfect? How can I do things? And, and that's really, you know, drove me to do a behavior. And it was a, sort of a subconscious behavior of trying to do everything perfectly and trying to. But in the meantime, there were parts of me that were very, very playful and still are. There are parts of me that were very curious and still are. And there was parts of me that were bratty and, you know, playfulness. And so as a kid, I was a little bit of a dreamer. And so I still laughed and jumped and fooled around and did things and got in trouble. And when I pushed my limits and I broke things and made a mess, my dad didn't like it because my, my siblings stayed in line and they were scared of my dad. My dad is like, yeah, he would get mad, but, he, you know, he's just getting mad at something that, you know, it was an accident. I knew it was an accident if something broke. I didn't do it purposefully. And he'd be mad. So I didn't take it the same way my siblings did. Right. So after a couple of years of that, by the time I was seven, you know, my, you know, my dad started really getting a little bit upset that his intimidation and his his verbal and his mental sort of trying to control me wasn't working and uh so at some point what happened is he decided to take the strap to me 
and you know to show me that this was you know i had to i had to bend to his will and if i didn't bend to his will there were going to be physical consequences so it started with the strap and then got to pushing and it got to beatings and it was just it was unacceptable from from age 7 to 12 that a young boy would be disciplined physically and and reprimanded and and without and, and a lot of the times it just wasn't something that was deserving and, and i remember when i turned eight i thought i was born on the eighth of, of the month and so i thought when i turn eight it's going to be a magical birthday and i got a beating for my eighth, eighth birthday and until four or five years ago i my birthdays were were something i couldn't celebrate because it was just he he took away from me something that was so critical as a child to feel loved and accepted on, on a birthday and on a special birthday, no less, and instead getting the opposite, right? So, you know, those are things that I, I figured there was something wrong with my dad. And as much as I could reason then that there was something wrong with him, the inner parts of me never grieved what it felt. My inner parts of me never grieved the, the loss the hurt and everything else. And thus I became a non-feeling adult child. Then until I did my fourth step and fifth step, I didn't really start to process those feelings that I had put inside me from all those years ago. Um, so, you know, going on through that, there were periods of hope for me. Um, you know, when I was in third grade, I was about to be kicked out of, like I was gonna fail third grade, having to repeat third grade because I was in a school and it, there was a lot of bullying that was going on. And then my dad got transferred. So we went to a new school and this new school, it was, I, I went to this school and after about a week, I, I told all the other kids, I said, I'm in love with the teacher. I want to marry her. I was in third grade in love with my grade three teacher. And I thought it's because she was the most beautiful person in the world. But I realized today after having done all the steps and all the work, that third grade teacher and all the teachers in grade four, five, and six in that school, they were loving, they were accepting, they weren't judgmental. I felt safe. I was able to grow. So of course I felt I felt in love with I was receiving the unconditional love that I get in some of these meetings from an elementary school, right? So not all schools are created the same. And this particular one was extremely caring and sensitive to the kids and their feelings and their needs and let us be individuals. So I went from being a kid that was about to get kicked out or failing in grade three to by the time I finished that school in sixth grade, I was like the top of the class and I struggled, but I wanted to work and be really, really, because I was getting something which was nurturing and loving from the school. So that, that was a safe place for me. That was probably one of the early safe places for me that if I hadn't had that, I would probably gotten into all kinds of trouble and who knows what I would have done with my life, but I certainly would have, would not have taken the path that I did. Uh, uh, I think just there's a lot of things that happen, but, you know, at, at the end of the day is because of trying to be perfect, I took on responsibilities as a young adult, I was doing newspapers, I was doing audiovisual repairs in the elementary school, I was, you know, I was just involved in all kinds of things. And I was helping run a business when I was 13, 14 years old. By the time I was 17, I was running the business and the owner said to me, we're going to give you this business and we're going to open up another business. They offered me the business, a multi-million dollar business to run by myself. I was running it by myself. They offered me to run it 
full time and they were going to open another business. I thanked them, but I didn't want to do that. But, you know, to this day, those are really dear and close friends to me. But as a 17 year old, I should have been out partying, drinking, having fun instead of you know, running a business. But, you know, that was the, the perfectionist in me trying to validate the left side of my brain and my false self and, and being able to say, I, I can do all these things. Underneath all of that, it was really about this little boy who wanted to be heard, wanted to be accepted, and wanted to be loved, and in particular loved and accepted by his father. That's really what this all came down to for me is that's that I understand that today, but that drove my behavior in this validation I was trying to get from others was really about getting accepted and loved that my father would turn to me and say, oh, my God, you're so successful in your job and I'm so proud of you. And I love you. That's why I was doing all these things for, for everybody else. It wasn't for me. It was to get that validation. So I'm going to go back to. Um, you know, well, go back. I'm going to go to where my 12-year-old was. Uh, you know, here I was, a 12-year-old, still being hit and beaten by my dad, being criticized. And I, at that point, it was just like th this rage had built up inside me, and I, I was done, right? There was this injustice that had been put on me from years and years and years of my dad and his resentment or his, his anger and his beatings and everything else towards me. So when my dad pushed me, you know, one last time, you know, he pushed me and knocked me into the wall and he, he, he hit me. And then I said, I, I got up and I said, are you done? And he says, yes. I said, well, I'm done. And that is it. And I said, this is the, this was the last time. And I basically left the kitchen because he'd normally say, you sit here and you're going to stay here for five minutes or something. I didn't care. I got up. After he said that he was done, I got up, I cursed at him, and I went towards my room. And as I pushed the door open to my room, it hit the bouncer on the back and came towards me. And I just punched the door back open, and I left my fist mark in the door. And I came in, closed my door, and then that door was it stayed there with my fist mark in it until we moved out. But my dad never touched me again. But that was when my 13-year-old defender showed up. This is the, I am done with injustice. I'm done with anybody's injustice, not just my own. If something happens and somebody, I'm driving down the street and somebody cuts me off, my 13-year-old defender shows up and honking the horn and screaming at him and I'm gonna kill you. It's like, he's not, he, he's verbally very, very expressive, but he's not physically, you know, gonna kill anybody. But it's the same one that shows up if I'm walking down the bicycle path and somebody whizzes by me and surprises me. My seven-year-old thinks he's going to get hit. My 13-year-old starts screaming, yelling at this biker that came too close, too fast next to me and scared the bejesus out of me. And the biker has gone 20 minutes later and my 13-year-old is still screaming, you're out, so that's my defender. And that's a perpetrator to a lot of people. If you're around me and you see me and you're walking with me and all of a sudden I start screaming at somebody and screaming my head off, you'll look, oh, he's an angry person. Well, that's my 13-year-old. He's my <laughs> he's my defender, I call him. Um, so, you know, that's kind of some of the crazy that happened. And, you know, when I was 18, my my parents, out of the blue, my dad filed for divorce pull the proverbial rug out from underneath me and, and welcome to adulthood, you know, just a complete crazy world. 
Um, and through all of that, I, I learned the laundry list and the other laundry list traits. And those were survival traits for me. So going into, you know, here I am at, at a very, uh, very learned adult child who's not feeling his feelings. So what happens when I start my adulthood? You know, try to be perfect at school, do, at work, doing activities. I became an overachiever, a workaholic. You know, I was a codependent trying to help this person, trying to help that person. And I was chasing validations and acceptance from everybody. And, and basically this acceptance, again, I, I, I mentioned is this trying to get accepted and loved by people so that I would feel good enough by other people, not by myself, right? And then one day, you know, when I'm in my early 30s, I meet this woman and just it clicked with her. It felt at home with her. And I said to her, I said, I said, I, I just feel like, I feel like I'm so at home with you. It feels like so, like, it's like this. I know this and it's so comfortable. We got married, had kids, and we stayed married for 15 years. And it was only during my separation, after we decided that it wasn't working, that I realized why I felt so at home. Because from the moment I met her, I could chase after her and do anything and everything for her to try to make her love me. But I was never going to be good enough. I was never going to be, it was, it was, she was exactly behaviorally like my father was. She was this false self of be perfect. Everything looks good. Everything on the outside looks great. But, you know, it was chaos. And so it was like, I, I married someone who is exactly like my father. And Tony A says it, you know, we, 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 we are our parents. We become our parents. We repeat the same thing that we had in childhood. And here I was repeating, you know, the same pattern of, you know, being in a dynamic that was exactly like the dynamic I had that was dysfunctional. She didn't beat me, but she was all the other things in, in the proverbial never being good enough, never being available for me, abandoning me overtly, covertly. I mean, it was just, wow. So anyway, that was a big wake up call to realize, wow. And that was before ACA that I realized that she was exactly like my dad, but I didn't realize or understand why, but I knew that that, that was a mistake I made, but I didn't understand why I made that mistake. Um, you know, going back through, um, you know, I realized now that a lot of times through my adulthood, I can say that my reaction to things and people around me was my inner kids driving the bus, right? So I'm an adult child. And if I'm in the laundry list trade or not in the laundry list trade, it's my false self that is making decisions for me instead of my true self. And so, you know, trying to be perfect or being afraid of authority figures and all those things were all those, those were my inner kids were the ones that are acting those things out, not uh, a loving uh, adult that I could have become if I'd gone through ACA. So, you know, so how did I find ACA? So five years into after my marriage was failed, um, I did find myself struggling in a long-term relationship. I'd been like, you know, three, four years into, and I was looking for like, why isn't this relationship working? What's going on, right? And I came across something that talked about ACA meeting on a Tuesday in Sarasota. And so I went home and I Googled like, what's ACA? And I came up and it like, it brought up the laundry list. And I started reading through the laundry list and I said, oh my God, this is really, really good. I, there's a lot, I relate to a lot of this. 
Then as I scrolled down below the laundry list was the other laundry list. And I started reading the other laundry list and the other laundry list has a lot of traits of my father. It's a perpetrator side. And I related that sometimes I, I was a perpetrator. When I was the defender, I was the person screaming and yelling at everybody. I was a perpetrator and I was quote, quote, out of control. So it's like, oh my God, this, the other laundry list, I relate to that too. But I felt embarrassed and ashamed that I related to the other laundry list. I didn't want to tell anybody, but I said, oh my God, this, this whole thing is, this is, this is a lot of truth, but I don't know if I want to go into a meeting and say, oh, I relate to the other laundry list <laughs> because there was shame associated with being a perpetrator. And if I think what I realized today is parts of me, of survival traits, I, when my 13 year old shows up, he is a perpetrator, but he's, he thinks he's doing well in defending an injustice, but that doesn't make it right but it is explainable through the laundry list traits that I took on to defend myself, right? So I started going to meetings, getting into literature. It was amazing, you know, and it's like for the first time in my life, it was this puzzle that they're here with these pieces of how I behave sometimes here and how I behave sometimes there. And now finally, I could see the picture of why I behaved the way I did. So coming into ACA, I said, was the visualization of who I was. It didn't help me put all the pieces together in the puzzle, but at least I knew when I was being codependent, why I was being codependent, when I was being, you know, a, a perfectionist, why I was being a perfectionist, why I was self-abandoning. I could, I could figure out, okay, so it gives me a dialogue to do some work on me. So that was a really, really great place to start to say, oh, I can learn all about myself. So the first year in ACA, I hopscotched around. You come to a meeting and they're reading from the big red book. And then you go to another meeting and it's the, the today's uh, gratitude, you know, and then they're saying what, what, what today's um, daily meditation is. And it's one topic, then it's another topic. And you relate to all of them, but you're literally hopscotching around all the parts of recovery and saying, oh, wow, this is great. Oh, wow, that's great. And it was, it was good. There was growth, but it was not structured growth. It was just exposure to all these things. Some of them had depth and some of them were less, but it was, it was still a lot of learning, which was great. I journaled, I attended workshops, I, you know, I found safe meetings and I continued doing this. And after about 11 months of doing this hot, this hopscotching, I heard there was a step study group starting. So I went and there's four of us, we started a step study group. And I was the only one that had never done this, this step before. The other people had done it in AA or in other programs and, and had done ACA, they said. So we started this program and started working through the steps. And a year into that, we lost one person who wasn't well enough health-wise. So we were three of us. And, you know, a year into it, we hadn't even finished a fourth step. And the meetings were just turning into social discussions about how's it going with your boyfriend and how's it this and how's that. And then it disbanded. It's like it crashed and burned before we even got to the fifth step. I have learned today that a lot of meetings hit what they call the fourth step wall. And they get to the fourth step and there's so much stuff in there that, you know, for whatever reason, they crash and burn before they can get to the fifth step. And it's, you know, the, it, 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 I realized I'd heard a lot of meetings get there. 
And that's where I ended up. And I was like, I was discouraged. It was like, what? I spent a year and I haven't finished a step. So I started another step study. Actually, I started two step groups and they were Zoom in 2018. I started two step studies online. And I went through two step studies. And by May, the following May, I finished both step studies through all 12 steps. And I was like, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. I went through all the steps. And then it was just a ton of growth. So what did I learn from the, the, the steps is, I think for me, uh, probably the biggest thing in step one was learning to get rid of the shame and the guilt of feeling like there's something wrong with me or it was my fault. And that's just the family tree and looking at my generational, my parents, my grandparents, my both sides, there was dysfunction everywhere. It wasn't just me that was dysfunctional. It's everybody up, the tr- my, my mother and all her siblings and all her, her siblings were all codependents and her grandparents were codependent. I was like, holy, it's like it's, everybody's codependent, codependent. So it's like, no wonder. <laughs> and then on my dad's side, you had the perfectionist on my grandmother's side. And on my grandfather's side was the perpetrator. And so you had, you had toxicity and it's like, of course, every, every, part of that family all the way back into four or five generations was helped get rid of the guilt and the shame of there's not necessarily something I did wrong. And it helps. And being in meetings with other people who've gone through similar or different trauma has just really helped. So that I got that from the steps. And the other thing I got from the steps was doing the fifth step is it's one thing to say my father beat me and my father was mentally and verbally abusive to me. It's one thing to say that. It's another thing to do the fifth step with another human being. And when you say it, they say to you, oh, my God, that is so, so, so sad. And in that moment, you take you take the time to feel what they just said and, and feel the feeling of how sad it is. And for the first time, your inner child feels heard. For the first time, you learn to process a feeling that you buried when you were seven and eight years old that you thought was going to kill you and you start feeling it and you start moving through it. And that for me in my fifth step was where I learned to start to feel my feelings, the feelings that I thought would kill me from the dysfunctional upbringing I had, from the hurt that I had, from the abandonment I had. I now have the tools to feel the feelings that scared me my whole life. So that was really, really, really huge. Um, so one thing I want to talk about is that's, that's helped me a lot is in the chat, I just put something, which is from, if you look at the Laundry Liz workbook in the beginning and else at the end, they talk about the, 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 the drama triangle. And there was a reference to Carpum's drama triangle. And so what I realized is that I spent time in, in being a rescuer. And that's where I spend 85% of my time. And the rescuer is where I'm trying to be loved and accepted by others. And this is my, my codependent part of me, right? And after I've given and I've given and I've given, given to my kids, given to my wife, given at work, at one point, I'm going to say, I've had enough. And I become the victim for 5% of the time, I become the victim. And it's like, I've had enough. I've been giving so much. It's time for me to take back time. And like, I'm going to take off and spend the weekend by myself, or I'm just going to, and I, I'm the victim and I've given and I need to take care of myself. And I feel like I've been wrong. And then 
I flipped often flipped to the defender or the perpetrator, where now it's like it's not just I need time because it's now you guys are the reason that I'm not able to take care of myself. You are the reason I have no time to do what I, is important for me. And I blame them, even though the reason that I didn't have time to take care of myself is because I was too busy being a rescuer. So I was doing this toxic dance with my wife, with my kids, with my with, with people I cared and I loved is being in this drama triangle. And I realized today that in my relationship with my siblings, I have two healthy siblings where I have, we're not in a drama triangle. We can talk and listen to each other, but I have one, two of my siblings. I was like, it's like I'm automatically in the trauma triangle and I can't change my siblings. I can't change my next older brother or my next younger sister. And if I talk to them, I'm oof. And so I make boundaries with them. And if it's very toxic, I told I block my younger sister because it's just too toxic and it's not healthy because I'm the worst person in the world. Like she, she just dumps on me and there's nothing I can see or do to make her feel differently. And it's not healthy for me. So that's been really, really important in identifying whether it's a friendship, whether it's um, a, a love interest, whether it's a sibling or whether it's my kids. Realizing when this is going on helps me to exit, you know, with love because you exit the, the drama triangle, you exit with love. But when you exit, no matter when, when you exit a drama triangle, you will always be perceived as a perpetrator. Oh my God, you're, we're not good enough for you because that's, you know, but you, you're exiting with love. I love you, but I'm not going to let this continue. And then they, they throw all the shit against you to say, you know, to try to get you to stay in the engagement. No, that doesn't work. So that's a drama triangle. Uh, the, another trick I think I found that really was important for me is when I'm listening and this, I practice this with my kids. I practice this with people I care about. In some of the meetings, I I heard use the words "I, me, and my." Right. So when you're when you're talking, you talk about the "I, me, and my." So when I'm having an exchange with someone, uh, especially a difficult one, you know, I listen and like I do in these meetings, and I I I try to remember no, no matter what they're saying, this is their truth and this is what they're feeling. They're not saying something because they're criticizing me. They're not saying something because they're mad at me or they could be mad at me, but it's still there. It's what they're feeling. It's their truth. And I have to honor that even if I don't agree with it. So one of the things I've found really, really useful with in working with and listening to people that I care about is first is to acknowledge and say, thank you for sharing. You know, thank you. I, I hear you. And, you know, thank you for, you know, your truth. And if, if I have something that I want to express to them based on what they say, they, they said, I have to make sure that I say it with the I, me, and my, you know? And so there's, it's, it's really subtle, but you know, the example I, I have here is, let's say somebody was sharing, yesterday was sharing and said, oh, uh, they, they were sharing that their son is looking to buy a house close to them. And, it, and so for me, it was like, uh, you know, I said, thank you for sharing how excited you are about your son moving close by. You know, thank you for sharing how excited you are about your son moving close by, because that's what I heard them say. And then in the I, me, and my, I said, it reminds me that I miss my daughters and I would love them to move close to me one day, right? So this was in the I, me, and my. 
And the difference is I'm not telling them how they should feel. If I had said to them, the old way I would have said to them would be, oh, that's so exciting for you that he's moving close by. You'll be able to spend more time and you'll be able to do things together. I'm projecting on them what they are going to get from this. But why am I telling them what they might or might not feel? <laughs> I got to get in my lane. So that, that I mean my thing is, you know, is one of the things that I've used. And, and it's hard practice, but I'll tell you, it's amazing. Because when I'm saying the I mean my, I'm being vulnerable. And I'm saying what's important for me versus just projecting onto them what they might be and must be feeling because as a codependent, I can go there. So uh, I'm just doing a time check. I think uh, oh, I got five minutes, <laughs> I think. No, I don't know. No, I got, I got nine, nine minutes. Um, so what else is there? Learning about my trigger and as other people triggers. Um, yeah. You know, this this one here comes up for me is my triggers. Um, you know, I'll give you this example because I, I, I talked about it briefly before. I love to walk. I love to be in nature. And so, uh, you know, I try to go out once a day and there's a bicycle path and it's a walking path and it's in the woods. So you can walk for miles and there's no cars. There's no traffic. You don't have to cross, you know, sidewalks with cars backing up or, you know, it's it's really and it's safe. And so I go there, I'm walking along this bicycle path. And then once in a while, there's some diehard bicyclists and they come, they come by. Most people biking will go by and ring and say, on your left, you know, there's not a lot of traffic. But once in a while, you get a diehard biker and they're head down on their racing bike and they're just like pedaling like crazy. And they're going fast. And when I was walking, when I started walking regularly about four years ago, they would some of them would just be so in their zone that they wouldn't even realize they're going like a foot or two from me. And the asphalt's 12 feet, 13 feet wide and nobody else. And so when that happened, two reactions happened. I, I overreacted and I overreacted in two ways. Number one, my seven-year-old is still terrified of being hit because he was hit by his dad. So whether it's a biker, whether it's a car is going to hit me, whether it's a tropical storm or a hurricane is going to hit, you know, anything with the word hit, my seven-year-old is freaking out, thinking this is going to happen again, right? So that's my seven-year-old. And then my 13-year-old, who's like, there's no way I'm going to defend my, the seven-year-old from being ever hit again. So the 13-year-old shows up. So when this biker whizzes by me, my seven-year-old freaks out. And he's scared to death of being hit. And my 13-year-old jumps to his defense and it's like starts, you know, and literally it's like, if I had a stick, I'd try to beat the guy. I mean, if I could fly, my 13-year-old wants to defend me. I, I, I am not a violent person. I would never hit anybody. But that's the, the overreaction of wanting to defend myself is so significant. But this was all my adult child reactions. On a scale of one to 10, what happened when that biker went by is probably a three out of 10. He was not being very respectful. He should have announced himself, should have been. It was a three out of 10. He didn't hit me. But but to me, when that biker went by, it felt like a nine out of 10. I overreacted. My, over, my inner kids were, were reacting. And so I thought about it, realized what was going on. And the next time, I tried to sort of walk, look over my shoulder, see if I could see him ahead of time. And it would happen. I was still screaming. It took literally probably about 500 times for me to get to where now, if the biker gets too close and whizzes by me without 
mean knowing or seeing, it takes about, it, it takes, you know, a fraction of a second, I realize what happened, but I'm reacting on a four out of 10. My inner kid is not, my, my defender's not yelling, my inner kid's not scared, thinking it's, he's being hit by his dad again. So my loving parent jumps in and says, whoa, 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 okay, I've got this. This was not nice. Inner kid, seven-year-old, I love you. This is not, you're not being hit. 13-year-old, I've got this. This gentleman wasn't nice, but you don't have to yell at him. I'll take care of this, right? And it's literally keeping in check my overreaction to this. So realizing I overreacted is a huge thing. And sometimes I underreact. Something bad happens. And it's like, oh, it's okay. <laughs> and, and that's the opposite of, of, of overreacting, but it's still just as bad. If something bad happened and I underreact, I've got to figure out why I'm underreacting so I can feel my feelings. I should feel a three out of 10. If it's a three out of 10, I should feel a six out of 10. If it's a six out of 10 in terms of good or bad, right? So um, so that's, and, and that, you know, translates to how I feel when I'm driving my car. You know, when people are cutting, driving recklessly and I think I'm going to get hit, my seven-year-old shows up. So my 13-year-old wants to become road rage. Is that what we call it? <laughs> I'm going to drive this person off the road. It's like, it's, it's the, I don't do it, but my reaction is what I feel is this is how I want to correct the wrong. I want to correct the injustice. So learning that these are all for me, overreactions or underreactions to the trauma I had, I can work through the trauma and I can learn to be in the moment and a little bit more present and not become, you know, an overreactor or an underreactor, right? Because I think that's where a lot of dysfunction happens in, in us as adults, right? So, so that said, I, I, I got a lot more tools, but I'm not going to go through them in detail. That's just, five minutes, Ru. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I'll probably just wrap with, you know, a few highlights from, you know, fellow travelers, you know, talking to other people is really, really key. Journaling, I write and I have journals where I write, you know, not every day. I used to write regularly, like just about every day. Now I write maybe once or twice or three times a week, depends on what comes up. And then I need to process stuff and I use journaling. There is uh, ACA Facebook groups uh, that are great for just going somewhere and posting, you know, how I'm feeling instead of going to a meeting, getting some feedback, and then I delete the post. But there's there's recovery there. We talked about doing the steps workbook. I did the reparenting workbook, the laundry list workbook. I mean, all these things are just amazing. Um, all the materials that are there, doing retreats, doing workshops, doing literature, the, the, all the, the the meditation that they um, the daily med the daily meditations. Uh, meditation for me, I I have that it's an important part of my life. Meditation, yoga. I, I don't not so good at yoga because I'm not very flexible, but the meditation is really key to just go to a place where I can reflect on where am I at and just tune out everything that's around me. And whether it's in a noisy place or in a quiet place, I, I can do this and just recenter myself. Uh, and that's really good for getting back in touch with how am I feeling? Uh, doing service work. Uh, there's relationship stuff. So on the relationship stuff, I think I'll just say this, and I think it was, it was an important aha moment today as I was looking through and thinking about relationships. Early on in recovery, I would meet someone and it was like, oh my God, I relate to them. Their share is so relatable. They had trauma similar to mine. I had trauma, the same thing. And we talk and it'd be like, whoa. But I want to realize now is that was my inner kid bonding with another inner kid. 
that was an inner kid. And I'll tell you, the inner kids should not be driving the bus when it comes to bonding with fellow travelers because the other person doesn't have recovery. I don't have recovery. And so this notion of I'm connected if my inner kid wanted to marry this person, whether it was a guy or a girl, it was just like, oh, I want to be besties with this person for the rest of my life. But there's no recovery. But you bond with this common history. So I, re- I recognize now it's not a bad thing. It's just my inner kids would find somebody that they trust because they've been through the same thing. So I'm careful now. And it's like, I trust a little. I measure. If it's safe, I continue. But when my gut kicks in and the person starts to, even though they have similar history to mine and similar trauma to mine, they start to act dysfunctionally, then it's like, oh, okay, maybe let's not trust too much here because, you know, they, be, they could become a narcissist or they, be, but anyways, long story short is I realize at least the importance of the inner child connecting to another inner child early on in, in meetings and recovery that, I, and I think it still happens. I see it happen where people bond with other people because the traumas, I relate so much to your trauma. So I think the last thing I'll say is my go-to, and it still is, is the serenity prayer. God grant me the serenity to accept the people I cannot change because I can't change anyone except myself. And so it's just that that is so powerful in teaching me the boundaries as a codependent and a people pleaser to say, let go, let go of everything else, right? The courage to change the one I can and the wisdom to know that was me. So that first line of the serenity prayer is so grounding for me, even today when we say it in every meeting. It just reminds me to work on me. So with that, I will say uh, thank you for giving me the space and letting me just ramble through my some of the growth and, and helping me go through some new growth when I was preparing for this. I, I got some more insight. And I guess the, the topic I'd like to just offer is, you know, if you want to talk about how have, you know, humility and vulnerability helped in your recovery, what I found is that if, if I can't be humble and if I can't be imperfect and I can't make mistakes, then, then I'm not going to be in recovery. So part of it is, you know, re- realizing that I'm human and I'm still lovable. I can be vulnerable with people I'm, I trust and I feel safe with, and that helps me in my growth. So if you want to share on that or anything else, I'd be delighted to hear.